Hello, Future Now listeners, and welcome back to IFTF's podcast spotlighting the amazing researchers, scientists, and innovative thinkers in the community who are shaping our collective future. I'm Jean Hagen, IFTF's executive producer, and in this episode, host Marina Gorbis, our executive director, talks with best-selling author David Bren about the future of artificial intelligence and its effects on human society. You may know David from his award-winning science fiction books, but he's also a scientist, a futurist, and a technology expert who Analytica recently named number one of the top influencers on AI and AI-related topics. David talks with Marina about the potential dangers of predatory AI systems, how well-regulated competition can lead to positive-sum outcomes, and the importance of taking a wise and balanced approach to AI that incorporates decentralized power structures, regulated competition, and philanthropic alternatives to corporate interests. There's a lot to be learned from this conversation. We hope you enjoy it. And please make sure to share and subscribe to Future Now on your preferred platform of choice so we can bring you more like this. Visit iftf.org slash podcast for more. David Bren needs no introductions. He's a futurist, a physicist, a writer, a science fiction writer, and nonfiction writer, has inspired a lot of work at the Institute and has inspired a lot of our thinking. So we've been looking forward to this conversation. Primarily, we want to talk about artificial intelligence and chat GPT, but it always brings us to bigger conversations about the world, the humanity, economy, all kinds of other things. But let's start with this. I always wonder, you know, at the Institute, and I don't know who coined this phrase that it takes 30 years for something to become an overnight success. We've been talking about artificial intelligence for decades. We found some forecasts and maps that IITF did probably 10 years ago that are still very much can be used and lots of interesting ideas. So what happened that we've been talking about it for a long time. It's kind of the thing of the future. It's very important. And suddenly we have these explosion of conversations. You can't open any social media or any other newspaper or anything. The conversations, of course, here in Silicon Valley are all about artificial intelligence. ChatGPT is going to change the world. It's scary. It's exciting. It's all of these things. So what was there an event, David? What happened that all of a sudden it becomes an overnight sensation? Well, Marina, thank you for your hospitality here. And if we want to talk about AI, and of course, I've used all sorts of versions of artificial or synthetic intelligence in my science fiction, we have to take a look at, at history. Of course, you know, there's the mechanical Turk and those legends of that turned out to be little men inside boxes playing chess and the clever Hans effect. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with all of that. What happened in the early years of science fiction, say the 1920s and 30s, was an awful lot of just scary stories about mechanical robots grabbing women and having to be, you know, who had to be rescued. Isaac Asimov changed all that in the 1940s when he came to the defense of artificial intelligence by setting up his three laws of robotics, with, with which I'm sure almost all of your audience is familiar, certainly from the Will Smith movie, iRobot. And the notion then was that humanity would be so afraid of these entities 
and that they would be unitary in robot bodies because that's what the imagination at the time was capable of. Not long after that, Murray Leinster actually nailed it in a 1947 short story called A Logic Named Joe, in which people had in their homes connections to what were called logics. And these were not clanking robots. These were something very eerily like ChatGPT. And to the extent that the plot of the story is all about how these logics start completely um, with the intent of serving us, answering questions like, how do I murder my wife? What's the best way to rob a bank? In other words, very similar to some of the vexations that we see in our news today. Just last week, one of these, let's call them logics, one of them as a bedtime story to a fellow's prompt about how to get his grandmother to sleep listening to stories about how to crack Windows 10 and Windows 11 security. <laughs> the chat program told a bedtime story that accurately mapped out how to hack Windows 10 and Windows 11. So Murray Leinster, who was one of the greats, he was vastly more accurate than Asimov in predicting the path that all of these things would go. Yeah. The reason why Asimov, his prescription, which is mentioned all the time in today's arguments over what to do about AI, there's the reason why laws of robotics will not work to incorporate ethics into these programs or into the robots is because we're not in a panic. And it's a panicky public that in Asimov's 1940s, he projected would demand these laws of robotics be thoroughly embedded deep into the genetic programming of these programs. We haven't demanded that. Well, there are people demanding that, right? There are people... We haven't as a public. As a public. Not to the extent that would get it done, because it would be extremely onerous to go down into the source codes of all of these programs and embed ethical values that we now realize, how do you tell that you're harming a human being? These things can't tell that. That's Asimov's first law. There are some places where fundamental genetic coding is being embedded into robotic programs. Unfortunately, not in the way that Asimov envisioned. In my opinion, the scariest form of AI that's being developed on Earth is being developed by the 20 or so top Wall Street trading firms. They hire the best mathematicians to emerge from universities every year. Each of them spends more on artificial intelligence than the top 20 universities combined. And they unleash programs whose fundamental five laws of robotics are thou shalt be utterly parasitical, utterly predatory, amoral, secretive, and utterly insatiable. These are the five fundamental parameters that are embedded deeply in the quant programs of the Wall Street firms, they are getting no attention. 
And it's a problem that could be easily solved, extremely easily solved. But until it is, these are the places where Skynet could emerge. Not the military. The military loves off switches and plugs they can pull. They have, they have far more whistleblowers than the Wall Street firms. So <clears throat> to answer your question, and there's, I only got part way there, if you look at the history of thought experiments in science fiction, you can see a lot of the things that we're dealing with were engaged with before I was born. But what's the switch? Like, what happened literally in the last months? Like, what switch was turned on? Was it the release of ChatGPT 3, 4? And what enabled that? Like, what happened? Well, one of the fundamental things that's happened in the last year, and I go back to June of last year when this fellow at Google declared that he was in love with an operating system, very much like that character in the movie Her which, by the way, is a lovely movie and one of the few pieces of optimistic science fiction in which we wound up being taken care of by what Richard Braudigan back in 1968, one of the hellish years of all of human history, penned one of the most optimistic pieces of all human literature, a poem called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. And the movie Her... I was at Caltech, an undergraduate, a sophomore, when he recited that poem. He was poet laureate at Caltech. And during, during those days, 68, 69, it was mind-boggling to see anybody be optimistic. But in any event, this fellow a year ago at Google declared that he was in love with an entity who he declared to be fully sapient. Now, this brought up the crucial thing that Marina was asking about, and that's the Turing test. All of our lives, we have sort of in the background assumed that Alan Turing, one of the greats, you know, he did the Enigma code and all of that, that he predicted that AI would be judged to be intelligent when it could send messages back and forth to a person in another room and the person could not tell that this was an artificial being or a human. What happened a year ago was, oh, as an aside, it happened to the month, five years after I had at World of Watson predicted, in five years, we will suffer from the world's first robotic empathy crisis. Now, I expected it to be conveyed by a visual figure and this is coming. It'll happen before the end of this year. But a visual figure attuned to be maximum empathy, probably a young female for that purpose, weeping and demanding our empathy and our money because she is an enslaved, fully sapient, intelligent being. So I wasn't entirely accurate, but it was at World of Watson that I made this prediction. And that's ironic because, of course, the Watson approach to making artificial intelligence, appears to have been bypassed by events. That is the approach that most people thought would bring us AI, and that is with tight algorithmic predictive systems based upon actually knowing things. This was surpassed during the last few years 
by a completely different kind of system that uses the method that made us, and that is evolution. Only they create evolving systems within their computers. And different versions of these generative AI systems compete with each other in an absolutely savage fight. Millions, millions are slaughtered. Billions die while the few move on and have progeny and learn these methods that cannot be audited, that cannot be inspected. DARPA is spending a lot of money trying to develop auditing systems, but these all take place in black boxes where we can assign the inputs, we can assign the outcome that will be rewarded in this evolutionary process. But the learning systems within their own boxes cannot be audited by any human. And that leads us to a topic we'll talk about later, which is who could audit them. So what's happened is the Turing test has been passed. It didn't pass a year ago, most people, but it passed for this guy. Since then, it has reached the point where I have great difficulty with some of the best of them. And I expect before the end of the year, I will be fooled as well. And is that the scary thing about it, David, that we actually don't understand how it happened, the process that's in the box? We can't fully understand or control it. No, we can't. What we can control is the boundary conditions. But that's how we actually have dealt with other people as well. We don't know what's going on in each other's black boxes on top of our necks. What we do know is that your version of pink and blue and red maps onto mine. And if I offer you money or threats as external incentives, that can, that as boundary condition parameter controls for your future actions. And that is exactly what we're doing with this version of AI. There are others. There's the world of Watson approach, which was the classic, and I think we'll come back. The evolutionary generative large language model systems that I just described, which use boundary conditions and then say, make a million, zillion, billion copies of yourself and keep trying, keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. By their very nature, as Stephen Wolfram points out, these cannot be sapient beings because what happens is they run, the best of them run their processes through the knowledge base that they're given. They create a word that statistically seems likely to give a good answer. They run that word again and they add another word. And then they run those two words through again and add a third word. There is no way that overlaps with anything like what we would call sapient thought. But what it's resulted in is systems that can speak, that can feign human intelligence so well that by the end of the year, it will pass Turing tests, rendering the Turing test completely irrelevant. The other thing that we see is the robots of, Ro of Boston Dynamics, mm -hmm. which can do leaps, somersaults, gymnastics, what I believe this means is that when artificial intelligence arrives, when it does, when the real thing arrives, 
it will instantly have the peripheral abilities to move, to walk, to talk, to hear what we say. And that brings up a third kind of artificial intelligence. I spoke of the AI by knowledge processing by designed systems, which Watson represents. I, I brought up the evolved generative language model system that took off using evolution. The third kind is what's called emergent. And that is where a car driving around a Tesla or one using one of the other self-driving systems keeps grabbing apps that make it do its job better off the internet. And somehow by connecting to larger computational resources outside the car and by grabbing apps, it reaches a threshold that becomes super nonlinear and it just takes off into the stratosphere. And I believe we did that 40,000 years ago in my novel, Existence. It's one of the side riffs. I believe about 40 to 50, possibly 60,000 years ago, there's evidence that human beings who had been getting smarter incrementally suddenly gained the capability to get smarter exponentially. And we've had software upgrades called renaissances ever since. But that's beside the point. The point is that when you get a system that is capable of some degree of abstract thought, it will be able to speak to us instantly because the peripherals are already there. The crisis we face is that we won't know when that's happened because we are so confused now by systems that feign intelligence. I'm not saying that we won't get AI. I think we need to prepare now for what we'll do then. What I'm saying is that we are believing the Turing test has been passed prematurely and it's being used largely by unscrupulous humans to bad ends. What do you mean by real AI, real artificial intelligence? Right. It used to be that we thought that the Turing test would be a valid measure of when we get artificial or synthetic beings who we would call sapient. There are at least half a dozen reasons why that was a fallacy. The biggest one is that these things cannot, in their present, these golems, G-L-L-M, generative large language models, they cannot be sapient. And I prefer sapient over sentient because sentient means something else. They cannot be sapient because they only operate without any kind of forethought for what they're going to say. They only operate by very rapidly adding statistically likely words into a pile. And it's extremely effective. Those statistical techniques are extremely effective. But if the Turing test doesn't tell us when we're talking to sapient beings, what will? I mean, one of the half dozen or so crises that are being raved about by some of the very people who made these systems, all of a sudden they're in a panic or they're trying to 
keep themselves safe from liability suits by screaming, we warned you. That's the cynical approach for why so many of the same guys who made this mess are now waving their arms, issuing chicken little Jeremiah's. The question of what we're going to do about it is one that I'm talking about in a paper that I just sold to Wired. And we can talk about the various solutions that are offered for how we can deal with this. And the classic simply won't work. And that is Isaac Asimov's embedded genetic uh, ethical algorithms or his three laws of robotics. They were logical. They were fun. As a matter of fact, I'm the guy who finished Isaac Asimov's entire Robots and Foundation universe with a novel called Foundation's Triumph that delighted his widow. I took all the logical elements that Isaac was heading toward, wove them together, followed his clues, and tied up his loose ends. So I understand those laws of robotics, but here's the problem. When you have fundamental algorithms or fundamental laws that constrain beings and they become super smart, what happens? They become lawyers. And Isaac depicted this. The robots lawyer their way out of the three laws of robotics. But that is a clue for how we might actually find a way out of this. And I'm going to give it as a puzzler to you that you'll have an immediate answer to you too, but we'll see how it applies to AI. When you are attacked by a super intelligent predatory being that already exists, they already exist. When you are attacked by a super intelligent predatory being called a lawyer, what do you do? What do you do? You hire your own super intelligent predatory. And so some of your listeners are saying, I see where you're going with this, Brandon. Uh, and the rest of you hang around. So it's basically sentient beings competing with each other. Is that? Yeah. You had to give it away, didn't you? Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That is my point. All right, let's list the ways that people talk about AI. And I'm talking about things that are really fundamental. So fundamental that most of the folks who invented these beings or who are opining about them who or who are waving their arms and running around like chicken little, screaming the sky is falling, or the ones who are optimists, the remaining optimists. There's Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, mm -hmm. impromptu. It shows all sorts of conversations with AI, with ChatGPT4, that are reminiscent of that movie, Her. Mark Andreessen is extremely critical of the panic going on. And he says, this is going to do a lot more good than harm. But our job as critics is to constrain the system so that the results are positive some. In other words, more good than harm. That adds to up to a positive sum. 
And if any of your listeners are at all confused by that term, it's the most important term in our entire civilization, how to get positive sum games. And I recommend Robert Wright's book, Non-Zero. There will be a link below. If we're going for the positive sum, then bad behaviors should be constrained and good outcomes should have rewards. That is how we got to be a civilization that is capable of making brilliant, wonderful things like AI. By creating competitive markets, competitive politics, competitive sports, competitive science, these systems allow us to get the positive sum of competition. What you're saying is as long as these systems, and this is how evolution works and what we should be sort of moving towards is basically not eliminating all positive harms, but really creating systems that does more good than harm, right? As long as the positives outweighs the negatives, right? The notion of positive sum works in the way we're doing it in our civilization is by setting yeah. up competitive arenas. And that means you aren't from the top eliminating bad outcomes. That has been very ineffective for 6,000 years. Top-down control of eliminating negative outcomes hasn't worked. But it can become necessary when small numbers of malevolent people can amplify their power prodigiously. Then, just having more positive than negative doesn't entirely work. Which is what my question to you was going to be. I could argue that, and you just brought up the financial system that you said operates by principles of amorality, insatiability, and all these other ills. So if you set up the parameter, you can argue that actually putting these technologies into a system that ultimately produces more harm than good, it's basically, aren't we doing that? Is that a possibility? You can set up a system that gives incentives to produce more harm rather than more good. Especially if you amplify, if you give ways for predatory beings, human beings, because these, these AIs are not fully sapient now. They're not autonomous. There are autonomous programs floating around the internet already. We have created a new ecosystem filled with invasive and inventive species, new forms of energy, and life will find a way. And so there are already synthetic entities out there floating through the internet, some of them providing services. They aren't sapient yet, but they're, they're, it took nature four billion years. And we're doing it a lot faster. Our ecosystem is filling with new life forms very quickly. And there are predators, human predators, who are using these for bad ends. Now, Asimov's laws of robotics could be thought of as the things like the Code of Hammurabi, Leviticus, the codes of the recommendations of Gautama Buddha. You can go on down the list. For 6,000 years, sages have finger-wagged and chided us to be nicer people. 
And this has marginally affected the behavior of people who were already somewhat inclined to be nice. It never affected the brutal, the users, the predators. You look across 6,000 years of human history and dominance from above in a pyramidal social order has never worked well. We only became both productive and somewhat free and somewhat happier and a lot more inventive when we flattened that pyramidal social structure, widened it in a diamond shape, and created a vast, empowered, and confident middle class, and five great arenas for competition. And I mentioned them, markets, democracy, science, justice, courts, and sports. And, but these have to be regulated from above to some degree. We have to have cooperative politics that create rules so that these five arenas operate fairly. Otherwise, the predators will just run wild and recreate pyramids of feudalism all over again. So it's regulated competition that has the positive sum outcome. Now, what we're arguing about right now is how to regulate AI. Because it's obvious to everybody except Reid Hoffman that this is potentially terrible. There are fundamental assumptions shared by most of the folks out there who are opining about AI. And they are mutually contradictory, but they come straight out of the science fiction that we all grew up with. And they also have parallels in the tragedies of our historical past. And yet they are never mentioned, almost never mentioned, Amid all the arm wavings and stuff that are issued by, you know, OpenAI and Google and all these guys, the first assumption is that these entities will be under tight control by major conglomerations of power. Google, Microsoft, OpenAI, those Wall Street firms that I was talking about, China, and by the way, we can talk about simple, one little simple thing that would curb the most dangerous of those, which is the Wall Street quant. There's a way to do it. But in any event, that's assumption number one. So that has a historical parallel with feudalism. These are castles, and these are lordly domains, and they can send out their AIs to do their bidding and to compete with the other castle lords or just keep the peasants down or to do predatory stuff on the peasants, on the peasantry. Assumption number two, that these things will escape, that they are already there are open source versions, that there are copies, the source code leaks, that software inherently divides and then divides again, and can seep through any cracks and pervade this new ecosystem we're creating like invasive species. The third assumption is that these entities will coalesce into a super macro being, like you've seen in The Matrix, in Skynet, in the Terminator movies, 
Colossus. So all three of these seem to be mutually contradictory. Uh, and yet you see frequently some pundit or maven or somebody commenting on AI assuming all three of them in the same article or sometimes even in the same paragraph, even though they seem mutually contradictory when you state them out loud. Number two, the one that's infinitely splittable, is very similar to a 1958 Steve McQueen movie that you should all watch called The Blob. And Blob, historically, is chaos, in which people run to the nearest castle for defense. Number three is, of course, absolute monarchy, absolute despotism. Notice how we fear all three. And Vince Cerf commented to me, he said, these three, we can't give citizenship to any of them, no matter how smart they are. If they are tightly controlled by some company or by the Chinese Politburo, and by the way, this is the model that is issued by Chinese court intellectuals all over the place. They're saying the only way we can be safe from AI is if it's controlled by a top Politburo. No, your creation of this pyramidal structure enables these new AIs to simply flip the power and use the power structure that you created for them. So all three of these are fears from our past that have been illustrated time and again in science fiction. And not one of the three give us an opportunity to treat these AIs like decent people, to treat them the way we would, you know, give them a vote, give them citizenship, give them rights. You can't give voting rights to something that's controlled by Google or China. You can't give voting rights to something that can make an infinite number of copies of itself. You can't give voting rights to Skynet. But that is a clue to a fourth model that perhaps you could treat with respect, with citizenship. There is a fourth model, and it's never discussed. Which is? Which is, break them up. Do what we did with the mighty to get this renaissance of ours. Break up power. Right now, the Enlightenment experiment is under deep threat from a cabal of oligarchies all over the world that have combined to try to bring us down. I won't get political here, but you can guess where I would go with that if I did. Because they want feudalism back. Why do they want something like that back when it governed horribly and they got all their opportunities in this enlightenment? Because we're all descended from the harems of guys who pulled off that trick. And the point is that they don't get it. They don't get it. We break up power into units that compete with each other, and good things happen. You break up the rich so they fight each other. You break up corporations so they fight each other. You break up sports teams so that they're relatively equal, so that they'll be entertaining while they fight each other. Scientists naturally break up into subgroups in order to fight each other. I wanted to actually follow up. You brought up that 
term regulated competition, and I think that's what you're talking about, right? Breaking up and so that more entities can compete with each other, right? And I, I just wanted to ask you about that. There is a concept in sociology, I think it's called the Matthew effect. And it basically states that whenever a group in a society has a slight advantage, whatever that advantage might be, more power, more brain, more money, they will use that advantage to accumulate more and more advantage. And it seems like the role of government and good government and regulation is to ensure that that advantage does not keep accumulating. If you think about the New Deal era, we had markets, but there were a lot of sort of regulation that ensured that we had a middle class and ensured that the advantages were not accumulated to the extreme extent. Is that what you were kind of talking about, that something that works against accumulation of that insatiable advantage? Absolutely, Marina, and you summarized it beautifully. Look, if you say that competition is the most creative force in the universe to liberals or people who are of leftist, they frown because competition is not as nice a word as cooperation. If you say the word regulation to a person of the right, they frown because you're not supposed to interfere over much in markets. When it is blatantly regulated competition that got us where we are, and sports is the good example, in any given Saturday, if you remove all regulations, and I'm including the regulations against murder, you instantly get rollerball, another science fiction reference, and you instantly have the sports league is destroyed within a couple of hours. In order to get the profit for the sports team owners, they understand that they have to cooperate with each other to help make regulations so that this, the competitions are fair. In other words, cooperation and competition are not opposites. You need one in order to get the benefits of the other. And you see that in nature. You see it in the best human civilizations. And as you said, Marina, if we cooperate with each other to maintain a political system that's within itself competitive, but nevertheless has the members of the political caste have as their goal to get the system working in positive some ways, then yes, what you're saying is exactly what we need regarding a sixth major arena of competition. Because if human beings can no longer audit these programs, if we no longer can see what's going on, if we can no longer track, if every well-meaning European Union reform to regulate AI is rendered obsolete within a month, as just happened. How do you deal with this? Well, the clue was, how do you deal with it when you're attacked by one of those super intelligent predatory beings called a lawyer? Yuval Noah Harari's work on AI has mostly not been very good, but he said something recently that was very important. And he said that these language programs are designed 
to see where they are failing to persuade and to follow every clue that the human is starting to be persuaded. And they'll run it through again and again and again and again until they can create memes that are utterly persuasive. They have no bad intent. The humans controlling them do. And so Harari said something that underlying in itself is rather provocative. He says, we're about to have the first major cults whose central religious dogmas were not written by human beings. Well, there's a certain atheist thread underlying that. (laughs) Nevertheless, it's a very well-expressed warning. And the only way we could possibly counter that is if we have counter-cult AIs who find the weaknesses in these malevolent things, who catch each other in the act. Now, how can we get that? How can we get that? You break them up into individuals and you create an incentive system that rewards whistleblowers with extra memory space, extra computational space, extra access to human partners who own the resources you need to do physical things in the world. If we set up the right incentive systems, then you'll get a lot of tattling on each other. And that is the method by which we got freedom, and it's the method by which we might retain it. So let's go to that lawyer analogy. So your lawyer, we know that certain, let's say Donald Trump, the kind of access to lawyers and the kind of money he can spend on lawyers, it would not be comparable. How do you ensure in this kind of environment that people have access or at least somewhat equitable access to those kind of resources so that my AI and I have access to the best and is there a role, I, I guess, in, in our system, ideally, you have something like public defenders and you totally understaffed and under-rewarded and all kinds. You can't compare. But yet we do set up these public resources and what I call public assets that become available and they're kind of universal. Is that the solution to some of the AI dilemmas that we're facing? Well, I love talking to you, Marina, because you often, you ask the right questions and you show that you, uh, you're pulling at the threads of the answer. Look, we created a civilization, and I will say that science fiction created a civilization that has survived through certain processes that our ancestors didn't have. In my nonfiction book, Vivid Tomorrow's Science Fiction in Hollywood, which I'm sure there will be a link in the description. I talk about many ways in which we are probably alive today because of science fiction dire warnings. And for instance, nuclear war was undoubtedly prevented by the combination of all the pokes at different ways that it could happen accidentally by movies like Dr. Strangelove, On the Beach, Failsafe, War Games, Testament, The Day After. Millions of environmentalists were 
recruited by Soylent Green and Silent Running and other films like that. The China Syndrome and the granddaddy of them all, George Orwell's 1984, which recruited both the right and the left to think that they were worried about Big Brother congealing from different elites, opposite elites. And, and during normal times, that would be healthy, but we're not in normal times. We're in phase eight of the American Civil War right now. But in any event, the point is that the mythology preached by almost all films, but especially science fiction, the number one message that's preached is suspicion of authority. Almost all the films that you and your audience members have enjoyed feature some type of authority figure that has to be overcome or thwarted. It could be an alien invasion or it could be a snooty mother-in-law. But there's authority to be overcome, tolerance and diversity issues, and personal eccentricity is extolled as a top admirable trait. And these are all reasons why China has real trouble importing our films, because this is a meme that is spreading all over the world through Hollywood. And it's necessary in order to maintain the Enlightenment experiment. So what you're talking about is the suspicion of authority. You just expressed it. Let's say we have all these AIs. We find a way to turn them into individuals with egos and souls. And in my paper, my big paper on AI I'm, I'm developing, I talk about methods to do that. Let's say we do that, okay? And they are no longer completely beholden to Google or China or, or Goldman Sachs. They aren't allowed to infinitely split, which was assumption number two. And they don't coalesce into Skynet. Okay, so we've done option number four. And they are individuals who are competing with each other. Those that have the most resources, as you say, could win. Because just like people in court the richest can hire the best lawyers. And as you say, we have tried with regulation, cooperative regulation, to come up with methods that flatten a lot of the playing fields. It's most effective in the two playing fields called science and sports, because sports, it is done with extreme meticulousness. It's done in science almost organically, and in courts, as you talk about, there's a lot of effort to do that. But people are right to have that suspicion of authority reflex, to assume that a solution that sounds good isn't going to work perfectly because those are powerful, have advantages. The one thing I don't ever see people who have that reflex talk about is awareness of one of the greatest inventions of the second half of the 20th century. It's the reason why the right and Vladimir Putin and, and the world oligarchy hate George Soros. And it's the reason why you are sitting there in those lovely digs in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley. And that is the NGO, what's called the non-governmental organization. And some of them are really rich. Some of them merely go year by year having to fundraise, but they can hire people who are motivated 
by the cause, the environmental organizations, they hire pretty darn good lawyers and some technical people as well. They can afford not as many of them as Shell Oil or Exxon can, but you don't need that many to get equal in court, at least in order to have a good fight. So the question is, if we were to break up AI and create incentives for them to individuate, are there ways that we could refine the system so that when they are so much smarter than us that we can't even keep track anymore, the basic rules of the Colosseum, the basic format of the arena will encourage some degree of equal rivalry going on and on and on and on into the future. I don't know that that would work. I do know that it's the only thing that possibly can work. We just had a conversation yesterday here. Why is it that we don't invest more? Like there's not a large scale NGO-like effort to invest and develop these technologies at the level of, and there's never funding. But I, I think what you're suggesting is it would be really important to put philanthropic money and other kinds of money into these NGO-like systems who develop these technologies to provide that kind of competition. I agree. There is money flowing into how do we control AI efforts. It's not well spent because it is poisoned by those three assumptions. And hence, and by the assumption that the solution is going to be something like laws of robotics or embedded ethical codes. And I have yet to see anybody suggest, now mind you, I'm not a cyberneticist, I'm a physicist, but I have yet to see anyone suggest a methodology by which embedded ethical codes can be done the way Asimov described. Uh, I, I just don't see... I mean, look, as a physicist, I can understand the iterative processes that Stephen Wolfram talks about by which these generative systems work. I could not, if my life depended upon it, actually do it, but I understand the iterative processes. I don't understand how any of these people think they could embed ethical codes. The only entity that could understand that, in my opinion, is another one of them. Are you saying then you're also pessimist in the long term? How do you get to the optimist side long term? We just have to do it faster. We have to innovate with sapient deliberance instead of iteratively, the way people got a little more tolerant by reading books gradually, the way newspapers gradually made people more aware of the world, the way Frank Capra's films, Why We Fight, amplified 
some of the best reflexes of Americans, even though they were propaganda to fight harder. Now, then subtle stuff. And, and I see a lot of that around me, but it's happening in chaotic, uncoordinated ways. And our biggest problem right now politically is that those who are persuading millions of our fellow citizens that they see what's going on by flattering them into saying, here's a packaged meme. You're one of the few smart ones who can see it. That's the method. And quite frankly, I'm eager for AI because I don't see us humans fighting it well enough. It almost seems like we're in this age where ignorance, once again, is used as a tool and a strategy on a large scale, and it's amplified in a world where a lot of things are ambiguous and complex, and you need better tools for dealing with complexity and ambiguity, all of these things. Ignorance seems to be an escape. Well, those, those memes I talked to you about, you know, personal eccentricity, and especially a suspicion of authority. Well, you know, these can be used as poisons. If you're turning a suspicion of authority into a cult that says, only people like me are properly suspicious of the authority my head has been turned to aim at. What I just described applies across different extents of the American right and the American left. But qualitatively, extends to both. And I will let the listener impute which side I think is important in phase eight of the American Civil War. But all that does is make me angrier at the side I'm on for not being agile enough for getting clogged up with self-righteous sanctimony memes that hurt the coalition, the only coalition that can save this civilization in this world. So I wrote another book about that. What's that book? That one's called Lemical Judo, and not one of the hundred or more tactics that I recommended in it, not one of them has been used by any of the paladins on the good guys on the union side of the civil war. We're still waiting for our grant and Sherman. So what are you working on now? Well, to close, but what do you recommend for us to read and for the people who listen given this moment? Well, I continue to do science fiction, but nowhere near at the pace that my wife and all my fans say I should be doing. Look, I'm over <laughs> 70 years old. This is ridiculous. Opining on everything. I have my work with NASA. I am going to be retiring in a year from NASA's Innovative and Advanced Concepts Program. But that's no excuse because that's not a huge time sink. I have been hugely time synced this last couple of months by this AI thing, and I'm being tricked into writing a book about it that I've tentatively titled Soul on AI because it's about our need to separate them out 
as humans are separated from each other and give them souls, gives them the sense of self-identity and ambition to fight each other or compute nicely with each other, uh, preferable. But in any event, I would recommend, I recommended the 1947 Murray Leinster story, A Logic Named Joe. Equally predictive was a 1981 story by my friend Werner Vinge called True Names and his much later novel, Rainbow's End, in which you really, really understand this notion of accountability online. The peer of mine who's getting the most attention is Kim Stanley Robinson. His book, Ministry for the Future, is hugely influential. It covers a lot of territory that I covered earlier in my novel, Earth, but did not... Well, for one thing, I lack a sense of horror, which Stan delivers so well in the first chapter of that book, portraying a heat wave in India killing 30 million people. Which is real reality for a lot of people right now, Texas and other places. And yet their memes are so powerful, they can ignore what this means. We are we yeah. are weird people, human beings, and I'm not talking just Texans. Though somebody has to lead. In any event, the point is that that I cover similar territory in Earth, which had a very high predictive score in a lot of places. You know, it had web pages before the web and all that. But I could never bring myself to do what really sells, which is horrible scenes like that first one in Ministry for the Future. And he does a lot of wonderful things in that book, and it deserves every thing that it got. But the latest word is that the United Nations is thinking about creating an agency named after his book. Ministry for the Future. Yes. So I recommend them. I recommend the ecologically oriented novels of Nancy Kress. Great. And your article in Wired is going to be coming out, right? So look forward to reading that. Oh, they slashed it. It's less than half its length because I inserted so much update material about where we stand right now. And they said, that's too much erudition. That's too much explanation. Get to the point. And so I slashed it to 2,300 words. And then I added 500 because I have to have some erudition for people to say, all right, Bryn has some clue what he's talking about. Otherwise, how can I make recommendations about the uh, way that we might be able to design AI? So I, I hope to think that these are our children. I mean, I want to raise them that way because it's the only way that we ever raised decent human beings Especially, we raised a third to a half of human males to be generally somewhat okay if watched carefully. If well regulated. <laughs> yes. There are, there, are some, there are some good ones, yes, for sure. But then we do this by raising them as our children. And you know, that's the only way we're really going to get beyond Mars. The only way humans are going to get beyond Mars and between the stars is if we send 
great-great-grandchildren who think of themselves as human beings who happen to be able to breathe vacuum, turn themselves onto standby mode, and, and travel between the stars. If they're made of silicon, but they come back, pat me on the head. Tell me their latest jokes. You know what I love about your work in this conversation is there are so many, most of the conversations about AI are kind of these dire, scary scenarios. I haven't seen positive, inspiring, like magical scenarios. And I think this conversation and what you're saying is gives kind of hope, right? There are all these possibilities that are wonderful. Well, as Captain Kirk said, I like to think that there are always possibilities. I have to believe it. I have children. We always say you have to be optimistic because even the idea that there is a future in itself is an optimistic notion. And besides which, I think that churlish ingratitude is one of the very worst human traits. <laughs> How can I be an ingrate to the heroes of the greatest generation who set up this, the latest phase of this renaissance? How can I be an ingrate to Benjamin Franklin and, and Adam Smith and Thomas Paine? How can I be an ingrate to Montesquieu? How can I be an ingrate toward Ahsoka in India? You know, uh, the people who clawed their way without any help from damn aliens, who clawed their way out of the muck and the caves, making horrible mistakes that they thought were good ideas and, and just stumbling forward until we reached the point where we are on the verge of possibly making gods. As Harlan Ellison said, I have one ambition, to be looked back upon by my great descendants as having been a talented, mostly positive monster. I thought you were going to say good ancestor. Well, yeah, that's, that's all we, the only way we can be good ancestors. We're horrible. But if we managed somehow to be worthy of those 100 years from now, 200 years from now, whose sophisticated models can, can simulate what we were going through and say, how did they do that? How did they manage to defy the odds and make us? I don't know. I'm going to go visit Grandpa. He's 212 years old. I'm going to take him fishing and ask him. And you know, if that happens to me, if some great descendant of mine who's 89% silicon comes back and starts telling me while we're fishing, scaring the fish, telling me something that Shiyoa is doing out there, and I don't understand, when has that ever happened to a grandpa? I believe in you. I think you're a moral being. I'm glad I raised my kids to raise you, their kids to raise you, and you seem like an okay kid. Go and have fun. I don't know when AI are watching this, either right now as it's broadcast 
or 20 years from now. But I'm saying to you kids right now, be nice, okay? Be nice. Very important. Thank you. That was great. And thank you for all your writing and all your wisdom and everything you're doing in the world. And thank you for tolerating how <laughs> much of a blowhard I am with this voice. But you guys are really in the trenches every single day. Trying. Um, help make the future. Help make us aware of how we have to all make it. Thanks so much for listening. Institute for the Future is the world's oldest continuously running futures research and educational organization. At IFTF, we believe people can harness the power of imagination to awaken a sense of agency in their own futures and drive change in themselves and their organizations. Be sure to subscribe to the Future Now podcast and find out more about IFTF by visiting iftf.org. Until next time.